This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Weekend Podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and so much more. In this week, the business section, it's a cannabis takeover. A lot of stories about the state of the weed biz. Yeah, exactly. So much going on. And then, of course, 50 years since the Apollo 11 moon landing. We've got a great story by our Peter Coy talking about management lessons learned. Who knew? And also another edition of Business Week Talks featuring the CEO of HPE. Plus, in President Trump versus Fed Chair Powell, new battle lines are being drawn. It is this week's cover story. But first, Carol, it's been a busy week for the Fang stocks, one company in particular. There was so much going on when it came to Amazon this week. Of course, there was Amazon Prime Day. There was stuff coming out of Europe in terms of regulators. Uh, And then, of course, there was this wonderful story in the magazine this week that uh, Jeff Bezos looking to kind of change the modern convenience store. Right. He's already changed the way we shop dramatically, probably permanently, Mm -hmm. to say the least. Uh, But what's he up to when it comes to Amazon Go? We're going to get into a lot with Brad Stone here, the man who literally wrote the book on Amazon. He joins us from San Francisco. So Amazon Go, go. What's going on? Well, uh, folks in a couple of cities probably know what that is. Uh, There are 13 of them now, San Francisco, Seattle, Chicago, and New York. They're adding them slowly. Uh, It's best described as like a convenience store where you can pick up lunch or breakfast, a a smattering of kind of grocery store items. They're small, uh, you know, not not larger than 2,000 square feet. But the big innovation and the reason why Amazon has been working on this for so long is that there are no cashiers. You, you walk in, you scan your app, you pick up whatever you want from the shelves, and you walk out as if, as if sort of you're shoplifting. And, and, and then if you look up dramatically, there are dozens and dozens of cameras that are kind of watching you and, and tracking what you do in the store to see what you're taking. And, and so you can charge, they can charge you for it. And this is Amazon's big bet to revolutionize retail. Well, talk to us about how it all works, because I was fascinated by the weighing of items, you know, people kind of moving products around if something's on the wrong shelf. Tell us how it really works. Yeah, and that's something that we, uh, my colleague Matt Day and I, were, were curious about when we started to, to research this story. You know, one thing that I, I knew just from following Amazon is that they have worked on this for an extraordinarily long time, <laughs> probably longer than most companies would ever invest in an R&D project. They started this in 2012. Jeff Bezos basically told a top lieutenant of his, go and figure out a way for us to do something unique in retail. And this is what they landed on, the cashierless store. And basically, they investigated a number of ways technically to try to make it work, to remove the, the line for the checkout. They were looking at RFID chips in, in packages having customers scan barcodes, all sorts of things. And basically what they, what they landed on was a kind of combination of computer vision sensors. So there are cameras on the, on the ceilings, as I said. There are cameras behind the shelves. Um, and there are also weight sensors in the shelves so that they can kind of combine a smattering of inputs to figure out you know, what's been taken and carried away as opposed to maybe taken and put back. Uh, and then the other thing is in a small selection of cases where maybe there's some confusion the computers get confused. Uh, there are am- good old-fashioned Amazon employees, <laughs> probably contractors, looking at the footage going, did he pick up a chicken panini? Right. Uh, and, so, and so one of the big questions is, does this thing scale? You know, how big yeah. can it be? That right. sounds expensive to do. That sounds like a lot of technology, and you also still have to have people doing things. That sounds expensive to me, Brad. One of our sources described it as the most expensive R&D project in Amazon, Amazon history. Wow. Now, we talked to Dilip Kumar, the, the technical head of this project, and he didn't think that was right. <laughs> um, but they have spent millions and millions of dollars on it. Now, and this gets to how Amazon operates and how we should look at the ghost store, right? Currently, it's a small convenience store. But, it, you know, obviously, they're thinking about it as something much more. In fact, we're reporting that there's a, uh, a, a ten to 15,000-foot uh, store being worked on in Seattle in the Capitol Hill neighborhood that's about to open that's going to be a much larger version of Amazon Go. So clearly they're looking at this, you know, not necessarily to replace cashiers and Whole Foods. They, they're say, they say they're, they're not going to do that. 
but as a kind of lever to create a new customer experience in retail. So the ghost store is kind of an experiment and a first step, and the future, as with all things Amazon, could be much larger. Well, and it's also an interesting reminder that to get to simplicity is a very complicated road. You guys do some unbelievable reporting here about you know how they built this. They built it very secretively. It had a very sort of anodyne code name. They had Bezos come in, and you have a great quote in the story that says the response was essentially, this is great, now change everything. What was it going to be initially? Right. Well, they went through a number of different versions. In fact, at the very beginning, it wasn't necessarily even groceries and food. They were they were wondering if they were looking at the electron an electronic store, a big general Walmart like store. Then they then they settled on groceries because people go a couple times a week, and that's where waiting in line, you know, can be the most inconvenient. Um, but the first the first variations of it were much larger. They had a 15,000-foot basically prototype in a warehouse, and they had you know, not only uh, you know, the, 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 the meals that are in the ghost store now, but they had fruit and vegetables and cheese and coffee stations. But the problem when Bezos visited this uh, prototype in 2015 was that you know, you're eliminating the checkout line, but you're asking customers to wait for things to be weighed, like 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 meat or fruit, yeah. and so he said, you know, cancel all that stuff and focus on the smaller format. And so you know, it's very Amazonian, just this long experimentation, a lot of a lot of stops and starts, but everybody working hard over many years, you know. Right with a demanding boss to try to get to something that was unique. And that's Brad Stone, a very powerful story. You know, the inside look that we get from Brad and Matt Day in that story is phenomenal. Just the little color, the little yeah. things that they did, how they tried to trick the computers. I love it. It's really an inside perspective. And our conversation with Brad continued. We broke down Amazon's Prime Day. He even told us what he bought and Silicon <laughs> Valley's trip to Washington this week. To hear the full conversation, download our Business Week Extra podcast wherever you download your podcast. So this week, we look at the cannabis industry from the grass ceiling. And yes, I mean grass. I love this. Uh, also, the global supply chain to weed for Rover and a lot more. It's this week's business takeover. Stoner pets, dude. Stoner pets. All right. Let's talk with Craig Giamona, sort of the architect of all this. You follow it so closely. Tell us where we are in this industry at this moment. We're at sort of an interesting point, right? I think we've moved a little bit beyond the novelty. I think for a long time, people sort of obsessed with, oh my God, there's a weed store in Las Vegas now. You know, you can buy marijuana at a store in Los Angeles. I think we've moved a little bit beyond that. I mean, now there's companies worth billions of dollars in this industry. It's legal across Canada. And you're really seeing cannabis, both marijuana and hemp, kind of move into the mainstream and become part of the consumer economy. So we wanted to look at sort of some different angles on exactly how this is taking shape. One thing I want to make sure we set the stage for because I feel like there's always confusion or a little bit of confusion on this. Where is it legal? Where is it not? Yeah. And how is that trending? Right. So marijuana is legal across Canada. Canada became the first industrialized nation, first major economy to legalize marijuana. It's legal now in 11 U.S. states for adults and something like 33 more medically. And that's what's driving it. The other key piece here is that late last year in December, Congress passed the Farm Bill, which legalized industrial hemp and CBD. So important explanation here, too, is when people say cannabis, if you're talking to sort of a weed person, they mean weed. Cannabis encompasses both hemp and marijuana. And for the last century, basically, both have been banned. Hemp is mainly used for fiber and textiles, but it got lumped in with marijuana and fell under prohibition. So there's been no legal economy here. Major thing that happens last December is the farm bill shepherded by Mitch McConnell. He's from an ag state, Kentucky. He wanted the farmers there who are having trouble with tobacco to grow hemp. They legalize industrial hemp in the United States and CBD, which doesn't get you stoned, but has some of the benefits of cannabis. And that's really kind of what's driving a lot of this now is that there's now a federally legal cannabis mm -hmm. market in the United States. So that means the movement of money or profits made from them, it's not complicated like it is for the other side of the cannabis market or what? The answer is still a little bit complicated, but okay. much, much less than if you're talking about marijuana. Marijuana, the problem is there's 11 states, California, Washington, Oregon, Colorado, Massachusetts here on the East Coast, where it's legal and there's stores open. The federal government still considers marijuana to be just like heroin or cocaine, completely illegal, banned. That creates a lot of tension. The reason why some investors have sort of pushed towards hemp is because some of those restrictions are now gone. There's a federal market for hemp. You can grow hemp in Kentucky and send it to Oregon. You could make CBD products in Oregon and send them to New York. So there's a federal interstate commerce market in hemp, and that's why a lot of the folks 
focus is now on hemp right now. Well, All right. So just on marijuana, one last question about sort of states versus federal government. How much of the investment going in right now is sort of a an option on it becoming federally legal in the United States? Well, we saw the deal between um, Canopy Growth and Acred. So Canopy Growth is the world's most valuable marijuana company. I think the market cap's up north of $12 billion mostly owned by Constellation Brands, who makes Modelo and Corona. They did a very high-profile deal to buy Acreage Holdings, which is a U.S. pot company that operates in several states. The deal is contingent on it being federally permissible. So that's basically an option on the federal government saying we're ending marijuana prohibition. Mm -hmm. But what you're seeing is there's public companies in Canada. People can invest in those. Some of them list on the major exchanges. But it's still, in the investing world in the U.S., a lot of family offices, sort of private capital that's really funding this. I mean, it's big checks, hundreds of millions of dollars, but it's not fully going because the banking system hasn't opened up to it. And I feel like every week, Jason and I have a different kind of guests from the cannabis industry. It could be from the investment world, could be from an actual company. And I do feel like we're starting to separate those that maybe have a smart business strategy and maybe have a path to profitability and those who don't. We are. And it's very difficult still to value these assets, especially in the US. There's no analyst coverage. But in Canada, what you're starting to see is like, hey guys, when are you going to turn a profit? Right. Right. You know, again, like I'm saying, we're moving past the novelty of, oh my God, there's a public company that sells weed and I can invest in it too. Okay, guys, uh, the profit target, you're still telling me it's going to be a loss for all of 2020. When is this going to change? We just saw Bruce Linton, the CEO mm-hmm. of Canopy, basically get fired by Constellation Brands. And, you know, that has to do with like, okay, these are real companies now. Where are the fundamentals? Right. I thought that was so interesting too because that, to your point, is sort of the sign of, oh, okay, well, this is a real company yeah. with a big investor, a big partner who essentially said, you're not meeting what we need. Right. You're not the guy. If you track what happened there, they install a CFO in May. Clearly, that person sort of gets under the hood, starts looking around. Then on an earnings call, the CEO of Constellation says he's not pleased with Canopy. Next thing you know, Linton is out. So I think that was a real wake-up call, an inflection point up in Canada to say, how's this going to work? And look, there's been questions about Canada this whole time. It's a small country. There's more people in California than there are in Canada. The way they did the industry, it's extremely regulated. Some people would say, well, it's legal, sure, but you can't market, you can't really brand. So a lot of questions about how this all shakes out in Canada. Meanwhile, the U.S. is chugging along, you know, with this weird state-by-state system, but also now this big hemp market. One of the most fascinating uh, places where this is going, I think we're both racing to get to the next story, uh, which is Stoner Pets. pets. I mean, using (laughs) cannabis to help your dog in a pretty meaningful way. Yeah, it's the anecdotal stories are really powerful. I mean, you talk to these people that, you know, my dog was 14 years old. um, I thought I was going to have to put it down. The dog couldn't, wouldn't eat, couldn't jump, couldn't run around, started giving it cannabis. And a couple weeks later, it was better. So what's interesting here is that CBD, people are using CBD too. And it's kind of the same story. There's very, very little medical research on any of this because again, it was banned for a century. So there wasn't like universities studying this stuff. So all of a sudden CBD floods into the market anecdotally people are hearing from their friend that it really helped Buster it helped their dog you know get better with its joints or whatever and people are trying it is it a placebo effect I mean people tend to think the placebo effect is a strong factor here but who's to argue with these really powerful anecdotal stories and you know the pet market the story of the pet market the last five years has been premiumization people want organic food for their pet they want grain free food for their pet all the trends that we think about in the food and beverage world for for ourselves yes exactly that's all showed up in pets and this is the latest thing CBD is like the premium ingredient in the pet food market I love too that you guys talk about the CBD market could be what worth nearly 24 billion in the US alone by 2023 with about 7% coming from the pet market that's pretty significant it is and one of the interesting things here too is that a lot of people think the cbd market will be bigger than the marijuana market Mm. at at the end of the day because there's just a bunch of people out there and i guess dogs too that can't be stoned you could take cbd before work (laughs) it helps me relax helps me sleep there's a lot of sort of use cases as they say for cbd where a thc product really wouldn't fit so it's a very interesting market and the pet thing is really driving it at this point. That's Craig Giamona. I have to say, I really love this story. We talk so much on our daily show about the cannabis industry, but he took us places I wasn't expecting, like the grass ceiling, glass ceiling for women in the cannabis industry. Right. And, you know, the great thing about Craig is he gives us the perspective, not just about that almost sub industry. It's obviously growing fast, but puts it in the context of the broader Mm -hmm. consumer companies, because ultimately that's going to be the test for whether this becomes a thing. Two technology and game changing companies of our time, Amazon and Uber. And one may learn something from the other by sharing its secret sauce. And here she is, Shira Ovaday. She's always (laughs) got uh, a hot take. And this one was so interesting. 
interesting, too, because we've talked so much about Amazon of late, and I feel like Uber's not getting quite as much attention, and you find this nexus of these two companies, which is fascinating. Tell us about it. So those of us who write about business and finance know about this operation inside of Amazon called Amazon Web Services, and it's basically an outsourced computing operation. So Amazon will say to a company, you know, pay us by the hour or pay us by the month or this flat fee, and you can get all of this computing power. You can store digital files on Amazon's computers, and it saves companies a lot of expense to develop their own computing technology and run it in-house. So basically, I'm suggesting, you know, there is an AWS hiding inside of Uber. This is a company that has spent a decade honing its own technology to match people who want rides with all of these drivers around the world. Uh, It has mapping and routing and logistics technology. That is all really hard to do. And other companies that have similar kinds of matching um, matching services, think about things like eBay or Grubhub or Airbnb, and anybody that dispatches couriers, right, they need all of the same technology and they're kind of having to reinvent the mm. wheel every time. So what if Uber just sold that to other companies? And actually, its chief technology officer, as you point out, has thought about this. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Yes. So at a conference recently, he suggested, look, Uber's got lots of other business ideas that are on the front burner, but this idea of doing an AWS-style technology is on the back burner there at Uber, and he kind of brought it up almost unannounced and made the comparison to AWS on his own. But he doesn't want to do it anytime soon. Yeah, I I think it's clear (laughs) that it's not front and center uh, in in Uber's imagination. Well, And one of the reasons why it might be appealing to Uber is that AWS has been so great from an investor perspective. Mm -hmm. Investors love that they can count on this business. And generally, as you say, investors love companies that can sell their technology to to other places. And Uber could probably use a little bit of love from uh, investors right now. Yes. AWS is maybe one of the best businesses create, technology businesses created in the last 15 years. It is essential to the functioning of the modern internet in a way that I think most consumers do not understand. And it is highly profitable. And that is one reason why um, investors have loved Amazon the last four or five years, because of this profit power of AWS. On the other hand, Uber, as we know, is a wildly unprofitable company. And one reason why the company's uh, Uber stock price is trading below its IPO price, at least as of this discussion, is because of this doubt about Uber's path to profit. And you know there are many, many businesses out there that sell software to other companies, you know, Salesforce and Slack and Zendesk Mm -hmm. and go on down the list. Those are well understood and well liked businesses to investors. Having said that, though, Shira, and you point this out in your article that the market for AWS is much bigger and a different market potential for Uber and its software. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of caveats here. And I think that is a big one is that AWS's potential audience is literally at any company in the world, right? Because everybody needs it, right? Everybody needs computing. They may not all use Amazon Web Services, but they all need computing. And not every company in the world has an Uber-like business model and needs Uber-like technology underneath it. So, yeah, that's a big reason why it might not work. And what's interesting, too, about AWS is the introduction of that changed radically the landscape of some of the other big uh, technology companies, the acquisitions they make, the business strategy decisions that they've made as well. It would be interesting to see if Uber getting into this business would change how Lyft thinks about this and how Mm -hmm. Airbnb and others who have been the Ubers of their uh, category. I think that's right. And it's worth noting. Uh, Uber itself, maybe Uber doesn't exist if there's no AWS because it too uses this kind of cloud outsourced cloud computing model that AWS basically invented. So yeah, you can see a lot of companies, if Uber moves ahead with this, it might create whole categories of companies that would not have been possible otherwise. What about another company becoming Uber 2.0? Like in other words, taking that platform and saying, well, we can do this now. Thanks very much for developing it. I I think that's a really good point. Um, We haven't seen a lot of examples of these kind of marketplace or or routing kinds of companies that have gotten to the scale that Uber has gotten. But look, there's nothing magical or there's nothing exclusive about what Uber has done. Maybe Airbnb does it, maybe Lyft does it. Uh, But the point is there is 
a lot of power in this underlying technology that Uber and companies like it have developed, and maybe it shouldn't be kept to, to themselves. And that's Shira Ovide, always provocative <laughs> yes. and connecting some dots that maybe other folks might not between Amazon and Uber. Well, you think about Uber's platform, right? It's a really smart one, and maybe other companies could tap into it, and it could be another revenue line for Uber. Uber's thinking about it, but they're not quite ready to offer it up yet. All eyes continue to be on Washington and specifically the relationship between Fed Chair Jay Powell and President Donald Trump. Powell, the frequent subject of the president's tweets. What does it all mean for the man himself, for the Fed and the future of monetary policy? Well, Chris Condon tackles all of that in this week's issue. He joins me from Washington. Chris, great piece. Help us understand, first of all, who Jay Powell is. He remains a little bit of a mystery, but you talk to a lot of people who know him well. I did. I spoke to a lot of people uh, who have worked with Jay Powell over the years at the Fed, also from uh, his days in private equity, his days in government. And the picture emerges is, first of all, of a very cool customer, rather unflappable guy who is pretty well personally suited to handle this barrage of criticism that's uh, now being sent in his direction on almost a daily basis from President Trump. Well, and as you point out, the barrage is fierce. And I'm quoting here, he's called the Fed crazy, quote, a bigger problem than China and, quote, the biggest threat to the U.S. economy. One of the questions we always ask in this situation is, it feels unprecedented, but is it? Is this sort of antagonism between the president and the chair of the Fed something we've never seen before? Uh, I think it really is. Uh, It would be going too far to say that uh, criticizing for a president to be criticizing the Fed is unprecedented. Clearly, we've had past presidents, particularly if you go back to the Johnson and Nixon administrations, that put a lot of pressure on their Fed chairs, mostly behind the scenes. Some of it was very tough. Uh, Some of it was a lot of dirty tricks, in fact, during the Nixon administration. Um, Since the Clinton administration, however, presidents have pretty much, in public at least, laid off the Fed chair on monetary policy. Um, And so we've had this very long stretch of over 30 years, and along comes Donald Trump, and he has entirely rubbished that tradition. Uh, So it is quite startling. And of course, we have the Twitter sphere now and all the modern technology that allows for instantaneous and constant communication. So together, that makes it quite, I think, an unprecedented situation where a president is using his broad um, platform, in this case, perhaps broader than ever, to communicate a constant unhappiness over monetary policy. Uh, directed straight at the chair of the Federal Reserve. And Chris, it feels like a good time to remind people about the Fed as an institution, sort of where it sits, its independent role. Help us understand that in context. Right, right. Well, it's a bit of an overstatement, first of all, to just say in a blanket way that the Fed is independent. Mm -hmm. It's not. It was created by Congress. It's accountable to Congress in very specific ways. But in the law... And in practice, Congress has carved out this space of independence for the Fed surrounding the deliberation and execution of monetary policy. Now, the Fed has to to still go up to Congress and explain why it does what it does. Um, But Congress very much stays out of the, the, the deliberative process there because it's become clear over the years that short term political pressures really tend to just muck that up. The Fed has to take a longer-term view at the U.S. economy, and thinking about the next election can only mess that up. Now, this works also, I must say, to the advantage of politicians normally because it also allows them to blame things on the Fed when things go wrong. They can say, look, the Fed is independent. They set monetary policy. They're the ones that messed it up and got us into this recession, say. Um, now, uh, so that's, that's kind of the norm in Washington, um, and it's to a certain extent put into law this, this amount of independence, and it has worked pretty well over the years for both sides. Uh, but again, uh, this president is kind of blowing up 
these traditions. Well, and when it comes to President Trump, one of the ways that he has tried to have some influence, obviously, is nominating new people to the Fed. He's had some misfires there, for sure, people who have withdrawn. Uh, But we've got two new names. Tell us about them. Right. Two people. One is Chris Waller, research director at the Federal Reserve of St. Louis. Uh, He's considered more of a uh, classic uh, Fed nominee. He's from inside the organization. He's a respected economist. He is very dovish. He has well thought out views on why he believes rates should remain very low, even though unemployment is low. Uh, But bottom line, he has a well thought out position on monetary policy. It doesn't sit really at the center of today's Federal Open Market Committee, but he'll he'll find a place there. Uh, He'll be listened to very carefully and respected. The other person is a bit different. Judy Shelton is a former advisor, economic advisor to President Trump. She's currently a director at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. That's a position that was appointed by the president. Um, And she could uh, be seen as one of two things, really. Um, Either a political partisan, because despite her past um, so-called hard money views, she has said recently that she would want to lower interest rates as quickly as possible if she became a Fed governor. Um, now, that doesn't really fit with her more, uh, her, her deeper background in thinking and writing about monetary policy and economics. Um, when I said she's a fan of hard money, that is generally associated with aiming for uh, very low, in, uh, excuse me, inflation, even zero inflation. Mm-hmm. Philosophically, she does not believe, in fact, that there ought to be a central bank setting a benchmark interest rate for the financial markets. Well, and I want to stop you there because, I mean, that alone is a, is a very provocative stance, uh, to say the least. And, and the idea that you would have someone coming in to the Fed that would, on a regular basis, essentially be questioning, if not its very existence, certainly all the key roles that traditionally we've seen it play. How would that affect the, even the day-to-day operations and, and certainly the deliberative process of the Fed? Well, think of it this way. Um, sometimes an unorthodox person comes into the Fed that has a different view on economics. That does not describe Judy Shelton. She has no place in the debates that the Fed holds around the table. She does not believe that that debate ought to be happening. This is a, she's interested in a, in a debate that's at an entirely different level. Um, she does not, as I say, believe in having a central bank set an interest rate. Um, she, do, she would rather uh, money be considered Uh, or be tied to a fixed unit of measure, like, for instance, a weight in gold. Um, This is a debate that was settled a long time ago by the people who were involved in central banking around the world. So she wants to kind of revert back to an older, much older debate. That would turn uh, the Fed on its head. Now, I have to say that as a governor, that would not be that disruptive. Uh, One governor has really not that much influence at the Fed But think of it in this context in which the president obviously has a great disdain for the current Fed chair and would like even to to remove him if he could. If a person like Judy Shelton is installed as a governor, she would, uh, fairly or unfairly, be seen as a chair in waiting. Mm. So let's say Trump is reelected and Powell's term expired, she she might then be named the next Fed chair. Or even before that, Trump could consider trying to demote Powell from the chair and replacing him with Judy Shelton. Judy Shelton, as a governor, would not be uh, that disruptive. But Judy Shelton, as a chair of the Fed, would threaten to turn that institution upside down. And just as we wrap up, one of the things you address in your piece, and you talk to a lot of people about, is the notion that Chair Jay Powell might just say, you know what, forget it, I'm out. But that seems unlikely based on the people you talk to. Absolutely. Uh, not, not a single person that I spoke to who knows Jay Powell um, pretty well at all thought that that was 
even a remote possibility. Um, he is very squarely focused on the job he has in front of him. Now, he could make plenty of mistakes in right. that job, but he is very clearly not the type of person that's going to walk away. And he's not in a position that serves at the pleasure of the president. The f chairman of the Fed has a fixed term with other certain protections uh, found in the law and in the Constitution. Um, it's not an entirely clear uh, argument, but... Uh, bottom line, Jay Powell is not seen as the type of person that's going to wilt under this kind of pressure. He's a pretty uh, strong-minded and stoic individual, and he's very likely going to weather this just fine. That's Chris Condon, of course, our go-to person when it comes to the Federal Reserve. And here is the world's most powerful banker, but he's also got a really harsh critic and a critic, President Trump, who doesn't seem to want to stop. Well, and let's be honest, we talked a lot to Joel Weber about this story mm -hmm. kind of behind the scenes. This is Bloomberg Business Week, candidly, at its best. No one who can tell the story like that. This weekend marks the 50th anniversary of the first moon landing. This massive undertaking involved many, many moving parts and participants. Well, and there's a lot of nostalgia. Yeah. around this. I think all of us who sort of grew up, especially yeah. in the 70s and 80s, really remember fondly sort of the aftermath of that. But Peter Coy, our economics guru and a space fan, I believe, uh, he takes a look at it from a little bit of a different level. And you start off, Peter, thank you for joining us, thank you. Uh, <laughs> talking about how it was a long time ago. It was 50 years. And so for a long time, we're saying, we made it. We got to the moon. And now it's more like, well, not we didn't get right. they got to the moon those people from long ago and and now we somehow can't or at least we're not doing it so in a way there's a some almost something faintly embarrassing about celebrating this this anachronism of americans walking on the moon we're not doing it now Okay, so let's talk about a little bit though. You do take a look back, look back fifty yeah. years ago at the process and what was in, was involved, and some of the kind of lessons that we've learned, yeah. management lessons, right? Because because think about it, the technology of the nineteen sixties was so primitive compared to the technology of today. It's amazing it's, we got to it's the moon, particularly <laughs> in the area of computers. Yeah, I mean the onboard computer. Uh, in the Apollo mission was so incredibly tiny, there was no computer that primitive that exists anywhere today. And yet it got them to the moon. So, so the lesson to me is obviously not about the advanced technology, it's about the, the management. So I think there are some management lessons that we can take today and apply them to today's moonshots, whether it's solving, you know, curing cancer or fixing global warming or whatever. And not universally lauded yeah. as right. a plan, especially as it went on and especially as people spent more and more money mm -hmm. and it seemed like a little bit of a fool's errand, especially in light of everything that was going on in the world and even in the country in the 1960s. Well, just remember, that was an area of race riots, uh, protests against the Vietnam War, um, assassinations. Yeah. I mean, it was, a, it was a difficult time for the country. You, you also, the, the whole uh, hippie peace movement was definitely not about you know, blasting off in giant rockets. It was right. going back to the land. And, but it was also on the Republican side. A lot of Republicans called this a big boondoggle. So there were incredible pressures uh, kind of working against this moon mission. But because... The, the NASA people, and there were 400,000 at one point wow. you know, working on this, had such a clear mission. They were able to put that aside and you know get, get going with their slide rules and get the job done. And when you talk about that ecosystem, that leads to, to one of the other really important points that you make. It was not necessarily a huge government effort. Carol's dad was involved in it from the perspective of being contractor. a contractor. Right. They really brought together this amazing collection of companies with the government at the helm. Talk to us about the lessons from that. You're right. It, this was a... Uh, on, NASA's uh, internal spending was only like 10%. 90 uh, percent of this was done by contractors. So you had Douglas Aircraft Company. You had North American Aviation. You had Grumman, IBM, all these companies doing a lot of the actual work under the supervision of NASA. Right. But then even within NASA, there were different centers. You had Langley, you had uh, Huntsville, you had uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. 
So uh, there was it. It required an, uh, a lot of cooperation, and you know, then naturally there were fiefdoms, there were turf wars, and all that kind of thing happened. But uh, Science Magazine in 1968, just a few months before the landing on the moon, summarized it by saying, you know, when we look back, it could be that we will conclude that the greatest achievement of the Apollo mission, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo mission, was was more on the management side yeah. than strictly on the technology side. It's such side. a great lesson for today when you think of some of the big issues, whether it's poverty, you know, gaps between the haves and yeah. have-nots right now, or climate change, right. this whole idea that, you know, you need help, you've got to work together. And right. this was this delegate, but decide, you know. I, I love this line in your story. NASA itself was more of a confederation than a single agency. That whole idea of kind of pulling everybody together for one mission. And to, it, it must be said that it didn't work flawlessly no, even then. No, I mean, the great tragedy, which we'll remember, in 1967, mm-hmm. three astronauts mm-hmm. died on the launching pad in what appeared to be a routine test. And they uh, traced it back to problems at uh, the prime contractor, North American Aviation. And it turned out that James Webb, who was the director of NASA at the time, had not known about the problems there. This led to his resignation, and it was a big blow uh, at a time when, the, you know, we were at that point. Sixty-seven was getting pretty close to nineteen seventy. Yeah. Was this going to blow the whole thing out of the water? But no, they pulled together and managed to get it done anyway. And that's Peter Coy. You know, we often go so wonky with Peter about the world of economics, but this was kind of a special story. I love it. First of all, he really dug into some of the history, maybe untold stories or unknown stories when it came to the Apollo eleven moon landing. But he also talked about this huge collaboration, so many moving parts, so many moving constituents if you will, to get this to happen and all of the lessons that we may have learned from that. My favorite moment of that interview was when we were all sitting around the table and realized all of our dads were engineers (laughs) and how we understood this almost on a subconscious level what was going on. You grow up with a different perspective, no doubt about that. He has written several in-depth stories about members of the current Trump administration. Some may not even be at the White House anymore, right? We've seen so much uh, movement, Jason. This week, his focus is on the U.S. Secretary of Education. That is Betsy DeVos. He is Devin Leonard. He's here with us in New York City. Uh, So tell us how you got to this story of DeVos. A lot of heat and attention paid to her sporadically, though, it feels like. So what's the backstory? Well, I guess, I mean, she's just one of those people who has this cabinet position it just wouldn't be in this role if it wasn't for the election of Donald Trump. I mean, you know, she's sort of a fringe character. I mean, she knows a lot about education. She's been involved in sort of as an activist in the education world for, you know, 30 plus years and stuff. But she's no experience in government. He's never been an elected official. And also she her positions are pretty, you know, far, far out you know, on the right. It's very conservative. And, and even these school reformers like Eli Broad and people like that to promote charter schools and things mm-hmm. like that, you know, you know they, kind of, they kind of feel like, oh, she's, she's sort of given our movement kind of, kind of a bad name. So, so, I mean, but, you know, in November, you know, 2016, when, when uh, you, you know, Donald Trump wins and, you know, he, he's surprised, everyone else is surprised. She's one of those people who went to Bedminster and, you know, and, and she, she got the job. She didn't even support him. I, right. I, mean, I mean, I guess once once he won the nomination, but she went to the Republican convention as, as, a, as a Kasich, you know, a, a delegate for John Kasich. So. Right. So the whole thing is just super quirky. And she didn't necessarily even want the job, right? Well... I think or when, did it was, when it was offered to her, she did. Okay, but 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 I mean, this is somebody who, you know who, you know, in 2015, she told an audience of South by Southwest, West, government really sucks. I mean, yeah. she's not. I mean, I mean, her whole thing is you know, you know just de- deregulation. That's a lot of what she did, or you know, or what she supported, you, you know, in Michigan, and has tried to you know foster around the country, you know, the country with various sort of dark money groups and, and things like that. So, right. so, so the whole idea that then she winds up as Secretary of Education, and that's just you know, kind of funny. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but, but you <laughs> know, ironic. you know, when 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 she was offered the job, she said you know it's a chance of a lifetime. Right. So she took it. All right, so let's go back because her backstory is fascinating. You know, both her family her husband's family. This is a very powerful, very wealthy mm-hmm. group of people in Michigan. Tell us. Well, and, and they're all from Western Michigan, you know, in this sort of area. Uh, DeVos herself is from Holland, Michigan. She grew up going to religious school. She went to Calvin College, named after John Calvin, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, the 16th century theologian. 
and uh, her father invented the lighted, uh, you know, sun visor, and and uh, so he became very rich. And then she married Dick DeVos, son of Richard DeVos, co-founder of the Amway direct selling empire. So, so you know, in Michigan, you know, you know, this was almost sort of like kind of a royal right. wedding, but you know, the princes and the DeVosses. So. Um, and, and we should point out, since you mentioned the name Prince, her mm-hmm. maiden name, her brother is Eric Prince, right, a right, Blackwater right, fame, who right. has his whole own uh, political and right. geo-everything right, right, story. Right, right, right. And that's another story. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, no, but, but, but so, but they're also, you know, very conservative and, uh, you know, both... Uh, you know, Mr. and Mrs. DeVos, Dick and you know, Betsy DeVos became, you know, very involved in, in uh, conservative causes, and especially with a focus on, you know, on education. And, and among other things, you know, you know uh, they supported, or she in particular supported this, you know, the sort of a furtherance of a, of a sort of lightly regulated, you know, charter sector with a high number of uh, schools run by for-profit companies. And uh, I guess, uh, to, to put it mildly, they've, they've had mixed results for, uh, for you know, for children. Well, talk about then her administration and what she's been able to get done, because it sounds like she hasn't had a lot of backing from either the White House nor from Congress in terms of moves. Right. But she has been able to roll back some educational initiatives that were put in place under the Obama administration. Well, I mean, that's the whole thing. Everybody thinks, you know, that, you know you're the Secretary of K through twelve education, you're not. Uh, I mean, you know, the federal government contributes something only like you know, I don't know, eight percent, maybe even a little bit less of you know, you know, the roughly trillion dollars that you know the the federal government spends on, or actually no, the, the you know that the country spends on, right. uh, you know, on on K through twelve education, but. They oversee the student loan, you know, you know, program, mm-hmm. and and that's a one point four trillion dollar program. So, so, so that's really where, where she's had had the most impact. I guess the other thing is is that um, her real cause is school choice. Uh, you know, you know, pushing charters, especially pushing vouchers. You know, you know, uh, you know, being able to send kids to to private school. That's really kind of kind of has has been her you know her her cause. That's the one that's nearest and dearest. Has to her she heart. made progress with that? No, I. I yeah. mean, I guess I guess there was a little uh, a little victory in the uh, tax cuts and jobs bill in uh, 2017. Um, Ted Cruz, uh, you know, I uh, got an amendment passed that you know would enable you know us to save you know put money away in our college savings account to spend on private school. But that that's been about it. I mean, she's tried to push these much bigger bigger school choice plans. Mm-hmm. She's trying to do one now, and House Democrats are completely against it so I don't, and and also and to get back to your point before I don't think most people would say that the Trump's not all that interested not all that interested in education he's got right. other 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 stuff that's top of mind for him well and and I think it's important to point out that some of the biggest things that have happened have been in this for-profit mm-hmm. right. college right. Uh, space where she's had some involvement the president has had uh, some involvement right, yeah, right. and this is a group right. of companies that has really been in many cases, rightly pilloried for ripping people off. Yeah, I mean, and that, and that's the, she's really uh, she's really come in there and been sort of a big kind of like you know b- you know backer you, you know tried to help the for profit college industry and you know certainly there are some good for profits but there's, there's a real history of scandal and in problems and kids getting ripped off and and the problem is is that sector depends heavily on you know federal student aid to, you know to survive so all right. these kids. Go to those schools, and they borrowed, you know, heavily, and then, and then, you know, they don't, they don't graduate, or the school's got a business, and they're stuck with all the, all, you know, these heavy duty loans, and it can kind of ruin them for life. So, uh, you know, the Obama administration really, you know, went after those schools. Maybe not totally successful, you know, all the time, but I, but I think it was probably justified. Mm. And she's really tried to roll a lot of that back. That's Devin Leonard. And what's interesting is Betsy DeVos, uh, interesting background uh, in terms of where she came from and who she married, uh, very wealthy individual. And education has been certainly one of her personal causes. But uh, she came into Washington as an outsider. And now we're kind of getting a tally of what she's done. Right. Well, and it's the latest in a series of stories that Devin Leonard has brought us really examining the different members of the president's Mm -hmm. administration, whether it's Wilbur Ross or Mick Mulvaney. 
bunch of characters there and an interesting collection to say the least. So joining us from Las Vegas, Hewlett Packard Enterprises President and CEO Antonio Neri. One announcement at the conference is that it's going to make all its products available through subscriptions by 2022. Let's talk about this move. Antonio, so great to have you here with us. This is a big move for you guys. Well, we are very pleased to be back in Vegas to host uh, our premier customer event, HP Discover, where we can reimagine what is next, what is possible, and to share with our customers all the innovations that will accelerate their business outcomes. And to your point, Carol, one of the biggest bold announcements I made yesterday is that uh, by 2022, everything we do inside Hewlett Packard Enterprise with our product and services will be available as a service. We believe this is a necessary step because customers want to consume technology in different ways. They want to only pay for what they consume and, uh, and they want to focus on innovation, not to manage infrastructure, not to manage their operations. So we feel this is a big, bold move for our company and a step in the direction where we see the market going. So, Antonio, a big, bold move. You're a year into having uh, the top job. Uh, Take us inside that decision, you know, you and your team, because as you have sort of alluded to, this is really you and and the senior team putting your mark on the future of the company. Well, I have to say I am incredibly proud of the leadership team of Hewlett Packard Enterprise. It's a team I handpicked through the last 16 months. I'm super, super uh, honored to work with them every single day. This is a very passionate, creative team that thinks customer first and customer last. And so we have been working on our strategy now for a number of years through the transition of the previous CEO, Meg, which is a dear friend of mine and I, and we took that strategy to the next level. Uh, We have been executing against uh, the top three priorities I put to myself for myself as a CEO which is to focus on our customers and partners, to focus on our innovation, and to focus on the culture of the company. And so we as a team decided this is the right time to make this pivot and to transition this company to be a consumption-driven company over the next few years. Antonio, as as Jason mentioned, here you are about a year in, and so you talked about some of the things that you were focusing on, customers, um, innovation, and also, uh, you know, some other things. I'm just curious what still challenges you as, you know, you look at this company and you look at how things are rapidly changing, rapidly, increasingly moving to the cloud. Well, uh, we live in a remarkable time where everything moves uh, lightning speed, but it's also a fun place to be today. You know, the pace of innovation both on the technology side and on the business side is accelerating. Um, You know, we think of the cloud as an experience, not as a destination. And we have a clear vision and strategy for this company into the future. And uh, it was developed based on what customers are telling us. We believe the enterprise of the future will be edge-centric, cloud-enabled, and data-driven. And the cloud, as you know it, has to move closer and closer where the data is being generated. And that's the edge. The edge is the place where we live and work. That's where the action is. And so we have a clear strategy for that edge, which is with, to provide the right connectivity with a secure connection, the analytics, and move that cloud computing closer and closer to the data. Because it's cheaper to move the cloud in the form of computing to where the data is, not the data where the cloud is. And so we have made a bold uh, statement last year here at, the, at HP Discovery in Vegas to invest $4 billion to develop that set of roadmaps and technologies that will accelerate outcomes at the edge. And at the core business, as you refer to the cloud, customers are now moving to more what we call workload-optimized and cloud-enabled solutions. We said many years ago the world will be hybrid, mm-hmm. and, and, and it is. And this is why now we have a clear strategy around a composable hybrid cloud architecture that provides automation, AI uh, operations with uh, artificial intelligence built at the core, security all the way down to the silicon level, and brokering so you can find the right mix for your enterprise, where you want your data, where you want to run your apps across the hybrid estate, and then ultimately focus on that data because the business outcomes comes from the data. And that's why I'm so excited about what we can show to our customers here on the floor. So I'm also curious how much of what you guys are doing, I mean, how much pressure, uh, Antonio, are you feeling from the likes of Amazon and Google and some others? And I know you have a partnership with Google, but some of these big companies that have really uh, you know, put their stake in the ground when it comes to the cloud space, how much pressure do you feel from them? 
Well, there's no doubt that uh, many of the workloads have moved to the public cloud, but the reality, when you look at uh, the enterprise level, even at the mid-market level, what well, we see that no many production workloads have moved to the public cloud. And the reason why is because at scale, with the sheer amount of data, customers realize it's cheaper for them to run it on their premises, in their data center, or in a co-location uh, at scale. And though we realize that uh, the world will be hybrid, there will be application and data sitting on premises and application and data sitting on what we call the public cloud. That's Antonio Neri, the CEO of HPE. I love Business Week Talks because mm -hmm. we get a little bit of a different perspective. We talk about the news, of course. We get a sense of who these people are. Right, and their management style. So we certainly dug into that. Joining us now to talk about Pursuits, the editor of the section, Chris Rouser. And I want to get right to the opener. I <laughs> love this story. It's all about going undercover at Nobu. Kind of undercover. Yeah. So we have this awesome journalist, Brandon Presser, and he's for a while, for a couple of years now, has been doing stunts where we sent him over undercover at super posh locations to see what it's really like to be a butler at the plaza, uh, to be a ski instructor at Aspen, to be a cruise director on a giant ship. And our latest project was we had him go undercover as a maitre d' at Nobu. All right. So could we talk about how did the, how did they even say yes to this? We're always <laughs> surprised <laughs> because they Do you really know what you're agreeing to? They read the other one. Yeah. <laughs> And, the, you know, we get some really good stuff. Brandon gets really hilarious de details because he talks to all the staff and they tell him all the stories. Um, and, you know, Nobu, I think Nobu feels very secure. They've been around for yeah. a long time, a decade, and they um, they just, they know, they've got their business under order. Well, right. And remind us sort of the role that sort of Nobu plays in kind of the... The, well, the celebrity pedig culture, the, the, pedigree, the pedigree that is Nobu, that's good, really. Yeah, so Nobu started in LA, uh, and, and Nobu himself, you know, just had a restaurant there. And Robert De Niro convinced him to come to New York. So they started this this empire together, and now it's around the globe. They have hotels. Yeah. Um, it's it's quite a big thing. Isn't it worth like a billion dollars? Yeah, altogether? it's a billion dollar business, and it's growing. They're building hotels all around the world, um, and you know they're famous for celebrities hanging out there. And um, Roberto Benigni ate there a bunch before he won his. Oscar for Life is Beautiful because he heard it was good luck because uh, Robin Williams had won um, when he after he had eaten there that night. So um, it so it's become this place where celebrities hang out. You know, everyone loves to go and the food is amazing. And it really kind of changed sushi around the world, like the black cod, the yellowtail hamachi. Those are things that you see on every menu now. So you mentioned the sushi and you mentioned the cod. Let's talk about the sushi because I think folks might not realize it's actually frozen. Yeah, so this is something that I actually didn't realize yeah. either. Is but that, that's rules, right? Yeah, it's it's regulations um, by the FDA that you have to, that most sushi has to be frozen before you serve it. So, um, you know, actually the sushi that you get, uh, most of the places hasn't arrived that day, even though you think, oh, we got to get this really fresh. And so, um, especially in New York City, almost every piece of sushi that you eat has been flash frozen first. Although Nobu is very good about the way they flash freeze it and it's super fresh and it doesn't degrade the cells in the fish. All right, so let's get to the celebrities because <laughs> the, talk food. He the, the, the sushi is nice but I mean <laughs> part of what the Mater D sees and he certainly saw this was all of the intricate behavior mm -hmm. that happens from the restaurant side but also from the client side, the customer yeah. side as well. So Brandon worked at Nobu 57 and Nobu downtown. There's two Nobus in New York. And, you know, this isn't even the most celebrity central one. The L.A. is probably celebrity locus. Right. Um, but he saw tons of celebs while he was here. He saw A-Rod and J-Lo on a date. Um, and he described the seating chart as a game of risk. So they have actually subscriptions to, like, InTouch and people at the <laughs> restaurant. So they know who, like, can't be seated near who. They have relationships with a lot of the celebrities so they know where they like to sit and they actually have um they use the young staff who uh who actually tell them like oh that's a youtube star you have to <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> influencers yeah, right? right exactly and you know you can't seat that person near this person and it gets like kind of intense well there are these corner booths right mm -hmm. and that's coveted correct yeah so there's four booths at one of the new booths in new york and everybody wants those four four person booths and they and you know it's like a puzzle only has four corner pieces and everybody wants to be in that right. spot you know right. you can't there's only so much you can do do. And then there's also issues of privacy. People like to not be seen. Like Brandon said that if you're seen as a
as a celebrity. Like if you see a celebrity in a restaurant in at Nobu, it's because they want you to see them. Right. Otherwise, they have ways of hiding them behind, you know, a wall of vases. Well, they have curtains. De Niro, right? Yeah. His table. Talk to us about that. So De Niro likes the sake table, which is kind of in an alcove because he likes privacy. And so you wouldn't notice that – you sort of wouldn't be like that's a hidden table when you walk into the restaurant. But it is. You can't see who's there. There's a ton of vases. Yeah, there's just a bunch of <laughs> vases near it. All right. So talk to us about the seating in terms of timing because one of the mm-hmm. things Brandon points out is there's no such thing essentially as getting there at 730. Yeah. So you'll never get a 730 reservation at a Nobu, which is also something I didn't know. Um, they they basically like to do two seatings so that they can arrange like a steady flow of food uh, throughout the night. And they do 300 to 500 customers a night. Oh. Um, and so they know that uh, a table of two is usually two hours. A table of three to six usually takes two and a half. More than that, it's like three hours. And so they start staggering around 630 and around eight. Um, so you'll never get in the middle of that. You know, you'll be seated around those two areas. And that way they sort of know that they can manage service. I was thinking like if you call, you're like, I'd like a table for 730. They're probably like, all right, this is like someone yeah. who has no clue about what we're about. Yeah. Or oh, well, they'll probably, I mean, they're very nice, right? They'll say, oh, we're booked at <laughs> yeah, that time. We're right. about eight. Well, and there is a little bit of advice about if you do want a table, because it's hard to get into, yeah. that there's some advice about when to call. So celebrities don't have a special reservation line, which is another interesting thing. They just call the main line and they may have a relationship and people may know them, but really they're going through central booking. And don't and, they have some codes, like code words or something? Yes, and some have, they have, they'll be given special code names so that people can't fake them and can't call up and say, I'm Nicole Kidman. Like, Nicole Kidman has a, a name that they use for their, I don't know what it is, but <laughs> right. often it's a name and some numbers, but for one- It's Chris Rouser. It's Chris Rouser, <laughs> it is. Yep. Uh, for one pop star, it's Juicy Booty, uh, which yeah. you can mm. try to guess who that is. But if you want to get a table, like one of us, normal yeah. pe- oh. we normal people. So you call around 4 p.m. the day before you want to dine. So that's about when they get cancellations in, and then that's also before sort of the wave of celebrities and VVIPs book. Celebrities try to book sort of the day of because they don't want that many na- eyeballs on the right. reservation. Right. So they'll call in then. So right around 4 p.m. the day before. Celebrities, though, while this is a place that they often frequent, I mean, they also have to behave, don't they? They do, yeah. And, um, you know, there's rules that everyone has to follow. Apparently, New York diners are the best behaved, according to the Manor huh. which is great. Uh, but you can get banned. And Nobu will be very, like, low-key about it. They'll tell you that you're banned, but they won't make a fuss about it. Obviously, they're not going to leak it to page six. But sometimes the banned celebrity <laughs> will do that. Like the billionaire uh, Stuart Rara, Stewie Rara, uh, very famously was soaked that he got banned uh, from Nobu, that he sent an email to all of his famous friends, like right. Leonardo DiCaprio, Alicia Keys, so that got out there right yeah. um, like can you believe it and they're like yep. but he didn't get they're back like, in yeah. did he no no it didn't help yeah, yeah. it yeah. didn't help it probably hurt uh, <laughs> a little bit one more thing because i we do love this story um Staff will sometimes make crazy runs for the celebs that are in there. We heard about deodorant, like a deodorant run. Yes. Yeah, so they, you know, they, they kind of, everyone who goes there a lot has little notes of, of, next to their name. Um, and they've been asked to do a lot of really crazy things. Some they will, some they won't. So one Mater D was asked to pour a bowl of champagne for a Pomeranian, <laughs> which she did not do, but she put out the bottle of champagne and a bowl. And she yeah. said, this is as far as I go. Yeah. But yeah, they've done deodorant runs. They do all kinds of different stuff. And they do takeout apparently. Well, they sort of they don't officially do takeout, but if you need a little bit on your PJ or yeah. if you're a regular, maybe right. Jason and I couldn't get uh, delivery, but if Carol called <laughs> and she said, you know, get it on my private jet, they yeah. would send food on her private jet. So they would. cool, yeah, totally. All great, right, we, great story. Um, love that story. Great for the summer. We got to talk also about what's in the critic uh, section because this is a new book about Elvis in Vegas, appropriately t- titled Elvis in Vegas. Yeah, so you know there was there was one big concert in 1969 that everyone knows about that changed. Music, but there was another one in Vegas actually, which was Elvis's first big residence in Vegas, and it was he performed with a sixty-person band, um, and it just was kind of his first like I'm here. Uh, it was his residency, and then it continued on for several years, and it kind of changed the expectation for how performance was in Vegas because it was in a huge theater. Yeah, right? and you know before that it was kind of the Rat Pack, it was Frank Sinatra, and it was kind of Dean more Martin, right? Dean yeah. Martin, exactly, and like loungy and more intimate and more sophisticated. And Elvis was not that. It right. was rock and roll, which was not very cool. Yeah, right. I mean, that was what – so one of the things that really struck me about this story was the reminder that, like, he was not cool then. I mean, he right. was very much sort of, on, sort the, of outs, on the right? outs culturally, mm-hmm. and this really revived him in many ways. And it wasn't 
a slam dunk that the Vegas crowd was going to embrace him. It was definitely new, and he was playing old songs. I mean, he was playing songs that were that had been around for more than a decade, and and he just you know he's he was a great performer. People yeah. loved it. He had all these tricks. He did his high kicks. He had the jump the jumpsuit, yeah. so he could do the kicks. Right. Um, and you know he it it really changed what sort of people wanted, and he continued to perform even as he was in decline. People he was sold out right every to every concert he did. Don't you have an Elvis doll on your desk right now? I do. Yeah, he does. That's another story. If you listen to our daily show, you'll uh, understand that. Uh, But what's great about this is that you really, as as you guys point out in this review, kind of set the tone for like your Celine Dion's, these big productions. It's in many ways the story of Vegas that we know now. Yeah. Yeah. Just the over the top, the big, the excess, the performance like that. That's Chris Rouser. I love this story about Nobu. The reporter going undercover, he's done this before, but really getting inside of what happens at the restaurant. Well, and what I love about it is very practical advice for the next time, (laughs) you know, we want to go have dinner at Nobu. I know how to get a reservation now. Exactly. That wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home. Get that at iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. And of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine. Check out newsstands right now. And we'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.